Hey. <laughs> what? From Threadbare Studios in wonderful New York City, welcome to Cue the Music, the podcast of queer musicians chatting with queer musicians. We are your hosts, Katie and Shia, joined today by bassoonist Taylor Smith. Hello. So I met Taylor, when did we meet? Maybe two years ago, playing beside each other and in the Queens College Orchestra. Uh, Taylor is a bassoonist. As you all know, I am a bassoonist. And being two out of two for the section, we, we've just bonded and grown a relationship that way. And so I know Taylor and I have very similar views on music and performance. And also Taylor, I will unabashedly say this, is someone who I would consider as a cis gay man to also be queer, which I think is like a rarity, but you kind of epitomize that. Hence, I wanted to bring you on and talk to you about all this. So I'd like to open up, open up this conversation and what is being queer to you? What is being gay to you? Hmm. Well, uh, being queer to me is like being accepting and accepting other people, being free to be who I am um, without any limits or boundaries and caring about what other people think of me or respecting other people or all of these things. Like, I guess I was um, made fun of when I was younger and that was never any good. But then it sort of formed me into be this like resilient person who can, you know, make the haters like back off. I think it has to do with that. Do you have a coming out story? <laughs> um, well, kind of. I went to the, the Missouri State Thespian Conference when I was in high school. And I met this guy and I was like, Oh, I see now. I like guys, and that's what people are talking about. <laughs> and then we got to know each other, and then we met up after the thespian conference. And then I told some of my friends, and I was so excited because I like realized this thing about me. I mean, I'm from the small town of Missouri, and there aren't a ton of gay people, slash I would say I didn't grow up around any, or queer people. So it was... Uh, pretty exciting when I realized it and there wasn't anything on TV that I'd seen. I mean, there was, but it was just very exciting. When you say exciting, do you mean like, and like it, was it like a mixture of like good exciting and terrifying exciting? Um, or was it, what was that, what is that experience? It was really good for me because I was happy to like feel like I knew myself more. And <clears throat> I didn't want to tell everyone right away, but once I started doing that, it was like amazing. I could tell people and be comfortable with myself. And if someone did like make fun of me or call me gay, I was like, yeah, I am gay. What was your first queer relationship? Hmm. Well, honestly, I think it's been sort of like a newer realization that I'm I could identify as queer. I didn't even really know. I sort of for a long time was like, oh, queer is gay. But we know that's not true. But I looked it up 
a, long, a while ago and I was, what what it meant to someone else. And I was like, oh, yeah, I am definitely that, you know? So I think I've had a lot of queer relationships without even, like, labeling it that or thinking about it. Ooh. Just like, like I said, like, respecting each other and, um, you know, being open to any experience or someone else's experience. And if it's not yours, then it's theirs, and that's okay. What would you say it is to queer a relationship? <laughs> to respect each other and... <laughs> so is that exclusive to queerness? Um, no, but I think it it is a big part of queerness, like mutual respect and openness. I guess I don't really think about it too much sexually because that part of me is like just the gay part. Ooh. Oh, I, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. So queerness is... Um... More of like a mindset. Huh. Or like a state of mind. A state of being. Yeah. Like I just am this way. It's who I am. What was your musical upbringing? I started playing the clarinet in sixth grade. Sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I switched to the saxophone a year later. And then I taught myself how to play the bassoon when I found it in a practice room. And I thought I was going to get in trouble when the band director walked in. But she said, do you want to play that? And I was like, uh, yeah. So yeah. I took it home and I went to the music store that was 20 miles away and bought a read or two. I practiced until my like lips were bleeding. Definitely oh not the right embouchure. <laughs> but whatever. Oh God, that is so, so relatable to my own experience <laughs> learning the bassoon. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of beginning issues. If you're playing yeah. the flute and your lips start bleeding, you're doing it way wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was always really obsessed with playing all the instruments. So I try to teach myself how to play, like, trumpet when I was in eighth grade and then French horn. And I always had a hard time with flute, but I've lived with some flutists in the recent past, and I now play the flute. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I'm pr not very good. I'm more of a second flutist. But so what got you from high school to here? Well, <clears throat> I've thought about this sort of recently. Like, I don't remember making a decision that I was going to go study music in college. I think it just sort of like was my path. Right. I mean, obviously, I made a decision to do it, but it just was very natural. So I went to the University of Kansas and got a degree in bassoon performance and musicology. And then I moved to New York and <clears throat> went to Manhattan School of Music for orchestral performance, a master's degree. Then I went to another school, Manus, for a professional studies diploma. So I'm all schooled out. <laughs> but yeah, I've been studying for a long time. And where does that put you now? What does your current um, musical landscape entail? Uh, I call myself a freelance bassoonist. And so I'm just playing any gigs that I get in New York pretty much so I can pay my rent and eat and ride the train <laughs> and go out sometimes, yeah. you know, hang out. <laughs> what meager existence do you live? <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's fun. I love doing it. So it's, I mean, New York City's, I can't think of another place where I would be able to make a living like this. Right. Like I have so many different gigs that like, I don't know. I don't think in another city there would be so many possibilities, like f for a lower level freelancer. Like, 
there are so many different orchestras and chamber ensembles and Broadway musicals and college orchestras and random composers yeah their music performed so much stuff so you're you're classically trained yes Um, you went for orchestral performance um and but now you're freelancing did you um was that a decision that you you made where you decided to do the freelance thing versus taking auditions for symphonies or are you doing that as well or I am doing that I've taken like 25 auditions damn so (laughs) I'm on that path like I want an orchestra job but it's really hard so in the meantime I'm just making it work this way what do you see in the future of orchestral works Hmm. what is the what does the future hold for large orchestras I hope that it has a long history that keeps going and people come to concerts and, you know, (laughs) make people feel something and move people and make art. So, I mean, that's what I do or I want to do and try to do. So I think art should always have a place and the orchestra is a living thing. Like it wouldn't exist without humans to without the blood going through our veins, like the orchestra wouldn't exist. Like Brahms' Third Symphony will be in a score and the parts will be in a library, but without the living people, it's not, it, there's no music. There's no life in, in That's really, I've never thought of it just that ink. way. Yeah. Because say a Picasso painting will you always can see be that. there. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned, um, um, that Mahler's music will just be notation on a page in a library, in a book in a library. When I think about the symphony, it's this big oh, historic ensemble. I guess one thing I think about is where is it going? Because I feel like right now we're at this exciting moment where people want to hear new music, um, but we keep. I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I mean, as I, someone who composes new music, I don't know if there are enough people who actually want to hear it. I mean, I guess for classical music, um, like the symphony, I feel like is this really beautiful medium and we keep playing Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart and and not that this music isn't beautiful and that doesn't deserve to be played. But, but it's been done before. Exactly. So what's... There's only so many different ways that we can interpret Mahler. <laughs> I actually just recently played I'm um, part of a new music festival and I played a trio for bassoon cello and piano and it was so fun because I didn't know it and there were no expectations and it was I got to play multiphonics and the pianist had some like fishing wire attached to the lowest strings and then to the end pen or I think that's what it's called holding up the lid and um put rosin all over her hands and rubbed on the strings and it made this really cool sound so I think there is an audience for new music it just I don't know I think people have to like give it a chance or because <laughs> I mean music a chance. I love it it's so cool what is the intersection of musician and queer in your life hmm. <laughs> I was uh, waiting for you to ask me that <laughs> no, um, Since those are the two big topics in this show, <laughs> gotta set them both up and then. Of course. Um, 
well, I guess um, I don't even I don't know. Me being me, um, always listening to people, um, respecting the people around me, and uh, not overstepping my boundaries when it comes to like playing with someone. If I have something to say, I generally find a nice way to say it <laughs> or don't. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I don't know. Um, wearing the clothes that I want to wear, being, um, hmm. I don't know. What is it for you? (laughs) (laughs) We're interviewing you here. I know. I get the understanding that your definition of queer, like, again, your definition of queerness implies a social responsibility. Um, And I get that as a musician, you know, when we're playing with other musicians, listening to each other, watching each other, being in time with each other, showing up on time to rehearsals. Did I say that? Because I was thinking that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, I I, 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 I get a sense that you envelop all of this in your self-identity or your self, um, what's the word, of queerness, your self. I like identity. Yeah. For me, we can delve into this more later, but (laughs) the surface answer to it is that a lot of queerness is about representation of different identities. And I think for me, part of queering classical music is dismantling the patriarchy and the pantheon of great composers. I took a 20th century music class in the last term of my grad studies, and the entire syllabus, this is music in the last century, the entire syllabus was white men from Europe and the United States. And to me, queering that would be to include all the other people. So to (laughs) include black composers, to include indigenous composers, to include women composers, to highlight those that have been most marginalized. Without tokenizing. Right. I mean, yeah. To find who the gay, queer, lesbian people within music history are. Maybe... A good example uh, that's, a, I think, a great baby step in queering music is to look beyond the music of Tchaikovsky, realize that he was more than just a great Russian romantic composer doing these great harmonic things he was doing, but to actually talk about how his homosexuality influenced his music and how he brought that angst of living that life into his music. And it's something that I think gets talked about within the section while we're rehearsing or over dinner when the concert's over. But to be explicit about those things when we're in the music history classroom and in the music theory classroom and when we present these works on stage and to not just acknowledge the fact that he grappled with his sexuality a lot, but to embrace it and make that the focal point. Yes, definitely. So you're talking about um, having representation in the composers, and I've thought about this too. It's like a way for me 
<laughs> to queer the music would be to like uh, uh, what is the word <laughs> um, when you um, recommend my god <laughs> gonna edit that one sure um, yeah. you can start again yeah a I, way for you to queer the music <laughs> <laughs> um, a way for me to queer the music is to recommend um, people of color or trans people or gender non-conforming people just to be performers like all my friends who I can and having representation in the performance not only the pieces or both but and I think that speaks a lot to your experience as a performer and my experience as a composer. <laughs> of course, we're clearly fighting for our side, even though they're not like competing sides, but yeah. each of our experiences more inform what we're actively doing right. right now. Of course, I want to embrace the fact that he was grappling with a lot of his parts of his identity, his homosexuality, and then think about that in terms of the, what he was writing and, and his style and his music. Um, but I also don't no, you know, like I don't want to imply, I don't want to um, impose my, what I hope, what I wish the history was onto what he was saying. Oh, right. I mean, that's, well, that was exactly why I used the term homosexual, yeah. because gay wasn't really a concept during his lifetime, but homosexual was something they were grappling with. I mean, that's always a really interesting question is... This idea of asking, was X historical figure queer? And we can't, if it was someone who lived before the 20th century, we can't honestly talk about that, I think, at least not in a way that is honest to the history and the identity, because queerness is a fairly modern identity. Yep, and language is always changing. And... Right. And while history is amazing and fun and cool, I think an obvious answer to this is to focus on people now and right. current, yes. current queerness. And Yeah, exactly. Like we have people who are trying to survive as performers and composers. And when we put all our stock in the pantheon of dead composers, it doesn't really help as many of us as it could, which I think gets to another part of representation is that if we're looking at this as a zero-sum game, not only must we elevate voices of the marginalized, we must also de-escalate those who are currently in power. That seems hard. It is, <laughs> because when you're there, you don't want to give it up. But that's a thing, I think, and I think especially in classical music, it's a very difficult thing to grapple with because when we want to focus on voices of marginalized people, a lot of times those people don't have the access that less marginalized people have. And as such, the institutions won't view them as, quote-unquote, as good. I think a really important part is going to the beginning, like helping younger people gain access to not only um, instruments, but lessons and 
people any type of help, um, you know, going to schools or obviously this is another issue like arts in the schools is not so good, but, you know, helping from the beginning and finding ways to do that. And maybe as queer people, it's our responsibility to ensure that there is equal access to the resources that we've been granted access to. What bothers me with classical music now more than ever is the focus on perfectionism and the focus on individual accomplishment and the focus on doing everything exceptionally. There's, from my experience, it's very much about who has the most technical proficiency, who has spent the most time in a practice room, who can perform this passage most fluently. And I think those are things that classical music prioritizes that not a whole lot of other genres do prioritize, and that's what keeps a lot of people out of it. This makes me think about queerness in terms of, I mean, it brings me back to being queer and being socially aware. I think that um, these larger systems like classical music and even in the way our government is run, it's very much on like what's what's down on paper is how good you are. What's your credit score? <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking about this because I'm also applying for an apartment. Um, <laughs> is, what's your credit score? How how proficiently did you play this passage? Um, what are you perfectly in tune? Are, do you have X, Y, and Z? Not how passionate of a person are you? How good of a person are you? How are you like conscientious of the people around you? Are you respectful? And I think that's a major flaw in classical music. How do you rate passion in an audition? Well, you said just now. Um, if you're doing well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm doing well. I'm like poor as shit, but I am happy, you know? So I think that's important. So as a person who went to a conservatory, how do you feel about all these things we're talking about comparing classical music to these systems of, I would say, oppression? Oh, it's very (laughs) true. I mean, yeah, it's like tons of rich white people that get to go to there because like from the beginning, they were able to practice on an, a nice instrument with l- private lessons. And then they can afford the hella high tuition because they don't give any, I mean, not that much money unless you play bassoon and they need you, but. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any shows coming up that you would like us to attend? Yes, I. <laughs> this is actually pretty exciting. At first I was nervous, but now I know it's going to be good because I'm playing second bassoon slash second flute. Whoa. I know. Oh, I have to show? see this. It's not. It's an opera. I have to see this. <laughs> well, they asked me if I could play bassoon and flute and I was like, uh, yes. And then I heard it was second. I was like, oh, praise somebody. <laughs> and um, anyway, it's a uh, it's the American premiere of Salieri's La Cifra, or I don't even know if that's how you say it, but it's with Del Arte Opera, and there are a bunch of performances. Oh, actually, there are only four, but August 18th, 22nd, 24th, and 26th at La Mama Theater. It's another dead white guy, but it's a premiere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Salieri's like, that's old shit. Yeah.
Mozart contemporary. Yeah. But as a freelancer, I live mm, not always too much in the future. So that's all I got for you. <laughs> right. Cool. <laughs> so with that, we will cue the music.
the Music is produced by Katie Bishop and Shia Cardona, with mixing and engineering help from Tom Lee and show music composed by Katie Bishop. This show is recorded at Threadbare Music in beautiful Long Island City in Queens, New York. You can find Shia online at patriciacardonaflute.wordpress.com and on Instagram at queerflota2018. Katie can be found at thequeercomposer.com and on Instagram at femkatie. Be sure to check out Threadbare Music at threadbaremusic.com and on Instagram at threadbaremusicnyc. Our guest this show was Taylor Smith, and you can find him on Instagram at taylorbassoon. That's it for Cue the Music. See you next time.